All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn in them to Revelation chapter 5, if you will. Revelation chapter 5. Now let's begin by reading the first seven verses together. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I look, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. What would you say if I told you that this is the most pivotal point in the entire book of Revelation? Let me say it this way. If this doesn't happen, nothing else after happens. We know this because of John's reaction. See, John witnessing this, we saw him taken to heaven in Revelation chapter 4, seeing the throne of God and him who sat upon it. He realized what this meant. And the scroll being unable to be taken from the hand of God the Father would throw the world into a permanent state of condemnation before a holy God. This is it. If this doesn't happen, everything from this point forward ceases in its tracks. So it's imperative that you and I know and understand what is occurring here before us in our text. That we realize the significance of this moment. We don't miss it. And we understand what it says and proclaims about our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we look at it together, I want to instill in your mind and heart the importance of this moment. Again, this is it. We start with a sealed scroll. As John witnesses God the Father there on the throne with this scroll in his hand and sees that no one is capable to take it from his hands and to loosen its seals, brings John to a place that in verse 4, if you look there with me, so I wept much. He broke down. He convulsed in his crying. 
he realized that this was the moment that was going to define all of the future. This scroll was something that was anticipated since the day of Ezekiel. And John realized how crucial this point was. Obviously in verse 1 as we read, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, this is God the Father, the Ancient of Days. Just as Daniel gave us this picture in Daniel chapter 7. And then he sees a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now what's going on here? What's happening? What is so significant and important about this scroll? I'm sure you all know, so we'll just keep going. This scroll has the entire future in it. See, John realized what this scroll was. It was a scroll that resembled that of the last will and testament of a Roman citizen. When a Roman went and created a will, that will, after being created, was sealed by seven witnesses. And after being sealed, nothing could be taken from it or added to it. It was sealed until the moment of the uh, one who would inherit from that will was given that will. He took or she took that will and then opened it to discover their inheritance. Meaning it was very specific. Only certain individuals could touch this document. No one else could. This was the Roman method of guaranteeing that the will would not be tampered with. So why would God create what we see as a will? Well, to understand this, we have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. So if you follow with me, turning the pages of your Bible back to Genesis chapter 1. It all starts with the creation of man and the fall of man. To understand this will, we need to understand the key component of a word that is used twice in three verses. Verses 26 through 28. Chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. After all things that God had created, he then took step back and said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over all creeping things that creep on the earth. You have dominions over spiders. So please, don't call me to come kill a spider, okay? 
And then God, I'm sorry, verse 27, so then God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. That should end that debate. And he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have, again, here's the word, dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. To understand this scroll within the hand of God the Father, we need to know what happened to the dominion that we were given over all of the earth. That word dominion is a word that means to take care of, to rule over, to be top dog in the created world after God created everything. He then created man as his crown jewel within all that he created, stating it was all good. Unfortunately, that lasted for a very, very short period of time. As you know the story, as we get into chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Genesis, things change quickly. As Eve finds herself in a moment by herself, tempted by the serpent to defy God, to disobey God, thinking that by doing so she will become like God, at that moment that sin entered into the world, not only did spiritual death take place within her and Adam, but also sin and death then began to blanket the entire creation itself. And what happened at that moment, if I may summarize it for you, is that the dominion that we were given was forfeited. It was forfeited. And it was given to the one in whom tempted us, Satan himself. This is why when we come to the Gospels and we discover that Jesus is in that moment of temptation, Satan himself trying to stumble Jesus, to disqualify him from becoming the Savior of the world, by moving from complete perfection to sinless imperfection. But Jesus, unlike Adam, resisted that temptation. He withstood it. But remember what Satan said to him. Bringing him on top of the pinnacle, he says, All of this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, Absolutely not. Not going to happen. But he did not debate with Satan about Satan's ownership or dominion or rule over this world. This is why Paul later on classifies Satan as the ruler of this world. The dominion that we were given, we forfeited to Satan. And now that dominion had to be brought back to its rightful place. Now God is sovereign over all things, including Satan himself. That's why the title deed, the will, if you will, 
is in the hand of God the Father. God the Father has never lost control of anything, but we have, right? And now we are reaping what we have sown. People look at the world around us today. They see the suffering. They see the sorrow. They see the pain, the agony, the sickness, the death. And they all want to blame God for it. Oh, if God was a God of love, why would He ever allow such suffering? Well, folks, we all have to take responsibility for this because we are the ones that forfeited God's perfect creation. We are the ones that allowed sin to enter in. And remember what happened after Adam and Eve fell. Immediately they were expelled from the garden. God placed a cherubim at the door so they could not run back in. They could not then go to eat from the tree of life to remain in an eternal state apart from God. But now there's a problem. And God had to solve that problem. So how did God solve that problem? He solved it Himself through the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ pierced the darkness and was heralded by that star from over Bethlehem, It was the moment that the light was breaking back into the darkness like never before. It was the moment that as he hung on the cross in those hours of darkness, that a price was being paid, a price that you and I could not pay for ourselves. It was at that moment that Jesus Christ became what is known as our kinsman redeemer, which we'll talk about more in a moment. It's at that moment in time that Jesus Christ bridged the gap between fallen creation and holy God. And on the third day, his resurrection testified to the validity of that that moment, the sacrifice in which he made. But shortly after, he ascended back into heaven, didn't he? The Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2 and the church began. And through the church, individuals hearing the gospel and responding, coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ, were a, had begun to be part of the new creation in which God is doing. But sometimes we get lost in that, don't we? Some of us may feel, like myself, that it's not going fast enough, right? But from the very beginning, God gave us hope that even though the world was subjected and plunged into darkness through sin and death, that He was going to make a way. And then later on, we read in various places of the Old Testament that God is going to make a new heaven. And a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth that have not been touched by the gnarly hands of sin and death. And that's what we look forward to. That's what's in the hand of God the Father. And as John sees this transpiring before him and realizes that no one is capable of taking it out of his hands. No one is capable of opening its seals. He begins to weep, convulse 
in tears in the midst of heaven until he is tapped on the shoulder by one of the elders and says, stop. Stop. Just watch what happens next. And as we see here in our text, one who is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah, one who is described by the root of David, meaning that he is of all majesty and that he is of all uh, omniscience, he is capable of doing what no one else is capable of doing. In verse 5, but no one, but excuse me, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, take a look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has what? Prevailed, conquered, overcome. All right, the battle's done. We don't fight for victory, we fight from victory, even though sometimes it doesn't feel that way, right? We are on the winning team. In the end, we win because Christ won. He prevailed. He overcame. Each and every obstacle that Satan threw at him, that his creation threw at him, he overcame and was the perfect Prince of Peace who died on behalf of us. And now he is able to do what no one else is capable of doing. In verse 6, And look and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. As though it had been slain. This takes you back, doesn't it? Well, wait a minute. We're in heaven now, right? Jesus has risen from the grave, right? And yet, now that we are standing in heaven, in the throne room of God, the one who stands up, who has prevailed, doesn't appear as a conquering king, but as a slaughtered lamb to take the scroll from the hand of God the Father. I don't know about you, but that would give me a moment of pause, right? That the mutilation of his back was on, for my behalf. That the holes in his hands and in his feet were on my behalf. The crown of thorns that he was mocked with was on my behalf. The only reason I'm standing here in heaven is because of him. I don't know about you, but if that doesn't eliminate pride immediately then you've got serious problems. To see Jesus like that, I can only imagine that there was an awe of silence at that moment. What do you do, right? This is your Savior. This is your Lord. This is your King. And He looks like a lamb slain from the beginning. But because He was the one that God the Father had sent to become the one to inherit all things. Notice with me what the Hebrew writer says. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, 
has in these last days spoken by us by his Son, whom he has anointed heir, there's the word, of all things. Heir of all things. This is why he is able to take the scroll because he is the heir of all things. Through whom also he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express, uh, image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, notice that, purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by the inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. He's the heir. Now, let me just tell you a little something right here at this moment. I think we could all understand that Jesus Christ is the heir of all things because no one else did what he did. But let me tell you something. He doesn't keep it there. You know, not only does God redeem us, but he also adopts us. Did you know that? Paul the Apostle tells us in Romans that we have become joint heirs with him. Again, you want to talk about something to move your humble needle a little bit. I have no right to become a joint heir with Christ. The only way, reason I do is because of the grace of God. I have nothing to boast in. I have nothing to brag about. But that's who he has allowed me to be. That's who he's allowed you to be. A joint heir with all, of all things in him. Now, that was a great place for an amen. Either you changed to decaf this morning or it's the snow, okay? This is incredible. And this is what this moment means. This scroll was originally given uh, to us in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Ezekiel prophesied about this particular scroll when he said, Now, when I looked... There was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And then he spread it before me. And there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were the lamentations and mournings and woe, meaning this is the scroll that once unsealed is going to pour upon the judgments of God upon the world, the wrath of God. Though Ezekiel witnessed it, he didn't touch it because it wasn't his. And now we see that this scroll becomes the deed, the will to be inherited by Christ himself. What we are seeing here was depicted back in the Old Testament. It's the concept of what's known as the kinsman redeemer. In that society, if you found yourself in debt to another, or if you found yourself in a place where you could not support yourself, you could sell yourself into service to someone else. This is exactly what Ruth did. And once doing so, the only way you could be released is by fulfilling the entire debt in which you owed, or have someone a kinsman, come and redeem you, meaning pay your pri the price you owe on your behalf. 
And that's exactly what we see having transpired here. As Warren Worsby writes, he says, To understand this scene, we must consider the Hebrew system of owning land. If a man became poor and had to sell his land or himself, he could be redeemed by a kinsman. The story of Ruth is based on this law. This redeemer had to be near a near relative to who was willing and able to purchase the property and set the kinsman free. Of all creation has been under the bondage of sin, Satan, death, but now Christ, our kinsman redeemer, is going to set creation free. That's what's taking place here. But notice with me, we can't move on until we realize the incredible significance of him being displayed as a lamb that was slain. In verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and of course these were introduced to us in the chapter 4, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. As we travel back to the book of Genesis once again, we realize that a question was asked by Isaac. In Genesis 22.7, Isaac asked the question, Dad, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And of course, Isaac realized that he had ventured up to that mountain with his father and realized that he was the one that was scheduled to be sacrificed. And you know the story. God intervened and they saw a ram with its horns locked in the thicket. And God then said to them, For I shall provide myself a sacrifice in the Hebrew. Myself a sacrifice. And from that point forward, we were waiting for the lamb. For the lamb. And in John chapter 1, verse 29, the lamb is introduced when John the Baptist said, Then the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now what's interesting to me is, did you know that that same mountain that Abraham took his son Isaac upon, 2,000 some years later, another would carry his cross up to that same peak and die on our behalf. But when doing so, the Father made the Son a promise in John chapter 5 that is being fulfilled for us right here in our text. In John chapter 5, verses 26 through 27, for as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted life uh, the, to the Son to have life in Himself and has given Him, notice this, and has given Him authority to execute judgment also because He is the Son of Man. 
God the Father, since you are doing what you are doing, I am giving all authority over the judgment of the world into your hands. And at this moment, as he takes that scroll from the Father's hands, as he unleashes the seals of that scroll, each and every seal will set forth a judgment of God upon this earth. And we'll see that in the chapters coming next. In verse 8, now when, I, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, I bet, each having a harp. Mine's going to be an electric harp, by the way. And golden bowls full of incense, which is the uh, prayers of the saints. And notice they sang a new song because this is the fulfillment of what was prophesied in the Old Testament coming to pass. This new song is reflectant of the moment. And notice what they say. You, speaking of Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and you have redeemed us to God. By your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, I want to take a moment to explain what may may be a confusing concept to you here in our text. We have an issue of what is called textual variance here. And the issue of textual variance that we find here at this portion in verses 9 and 10 has to do with the identity of the individuals singing the song. In certain Greek manuscripts, it's in the first person, which is reflected in the King James, New King James Version of the Bible. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God. Now, some of your translations may use the word people at that point. The word people in the Greek t- manuscripts that are used for the newer translations is not found in the original Greek. It is inserted to help individuals realize that they believe that this song is sung in the third person rather than the first. And they identify that by a word here in verse 10, if you have a newer translation, and have made them. That's what you should read in your Bible. Now, textual criticism is a long subject. We would be here until four. If you don't have anything to do, we'll stay. But the point of the matter is, is that you could go either way on this, but I believe after 30 years of studying the Bible, that the proper translation is found in verse 9 and 10 of the word us. The song is being sung by those who have been redeemed. Now, I believe this has great significance. If we are in heaven at this point, and we are singing the song at this point, talking about the worthiness of the Lamb for redeeming us, if we're on in heaven, where are we not? On earth. And this is another reason that I believe that the church will be removed before God pours out His judgment upon the world. 
I believe it is us who are singing this song, this new song that they sang. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. The concept of this new song takes us back again to the Old Testament in Isaiah 42, 9 through 10. Notice what Isaiah states. In light of the discovery that the process now is moving forward into the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, he says here, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a what? A new song. And his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. You coastlands and you inhabitants of them. Meaning everyone to sing this song of redemption. But the worship doesn't stay contained to just those. Notice in verse 11 with me, if you will. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the thrones and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. You know what that means in the Greek? It's very technical. Okay, you ready? It means a lot. There's a lot of people singing this song. You know, it's interesting, they've discovered today that many Christians need to be in large church gatherings because the large church gatherings gives them a sense of affirmation in, in, in their heart and in their minds, helping them to uh, come, become confident of what they believe and why they believe it. They find that Christians have a much more difficult time worshiping in small groups of people without the popularity or the number of people reassuring them of their decision for Jesus Christ. And many Christians feel today that they worship alone. I'm here to tell you that you're not alone. We are not alone in what God is doing. Sometimes you can feel that way. Satan loves to move us into a place where we feel that we are alone. And in that loneliness, we may conclude that God has abandoned us. We may conclude that God's people have abandoned us. Satan loves to divide and conquer. Once dividing us and isolating us, he then begins to go to work on us. Look at you're all by yourself. If this, thing, if this God thing was real, then everybody would believe in Him. But yet, you're the only one. And, we re and He says, we know that the majority is always correct, right? Not so. But when we get to heaven, and we are in the midst of the 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands and thousands, oh boy. That is going to be something. 
And when we get there, Chris will have his guitar, and all these guys will be up there, and it is going to be one of the largest jam sessions that anyone has ever seen, okay? And notice they said then with a loud voice, notice this word worthy again, because only Jesus did what Jesus did. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, again there's that word, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power to be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever and ever and ever. Oh, I got stuck. And ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. So be it. And the 24 elders, which I believe represents all of us redeemed by Christ, fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. This is the most pivotal point in the book of Revelation. If the scroll couldn't be taken, nothing could occur and proceed from this moment. That's why Dr. Robert Mounts in his famous commentary said, Chapter 5 has revealed a central truth that governs the entire book of Revelation. By his sacrificial death, the Lamb has taken control of the course of history and guarantees its future. Do you notice that nothing stood in his way? When he took that scroll out of the Father's hand, nothing stopped him. You know why? Nothing could. And I think of Daniel when he read, I'm sorry, wrote in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. When all of this was being set up, in verse 9, I watched till the thrones were put in place, set up. And the ancients of days was seated, his garments was white as snow, and the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. And notice this. Does this sound familiar? A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And then the court was seated. And the books were opened. The word books there in the Hebrew is the word scroll. Daniel is saying that he saw the preparations being made for this moment. And those preparations would come to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ at this moment. As Jesus takes the scroll from the hand of God the Father and begins to unloosen the seals one after another. Warren Worsby said, Christ is about to open the sealed book and release the judgment on the world. Keep in mind the dual purpose of the tribulation. Number one, to punish the nations for their sins, especially the way they have treated the nation of Israel. And number two, to purge Israel and prepare a believing remnant to receive Christ when he comes in glory in Revelation 19. 
the inhabitants of the earth are ignorant of this glorious scene in heaven. As the days of Noah and Lot, they go on their way, eating and drinking and ignoring God's warnings. Then the Lamb will bring, uh, begin to open the book, and the judgments will fall. How important it is for you to be saved now, while there is still the opportunity in God's grace. The opening of the seven seals. Well, next week we're going to be talking about an event that I would like to see happen before this occurs. After studying the Bible for as long as I have, I will tell you this with certainty. I don't wish hell upon my worst enemy. I don't wish an eternity separated from God to anyone. I long to see people saved in Christ. There's a lot going on in our world today. And often when you talk about the book of Revelation, we want to talk about all of the evils that are going on in the world today that would confirm that we are in the last days. I don't know if I really have to make an argument to convince you that we are in the last days, do I? I can say this for certainty, we're 2,000 years closer than we've ever been before. But to next week, I want to talk about something positive. I want to talk about seeing people in our nation come back to the Lord who've walked away from the Lord and to see people coming to the Lord for the very first time. We have a lot of questions about revival. What's happening at Ashbury? What's happening around these other campuses in Cedarville and other places? Now it's happening on secular campuses. People don't know how to react. But you remember this, God never asks anyone permission before he does anything, does he? So what is revival? What are awakenings? Do you know we have examples of both in the Bible? And some may say I'm simply uh, dealing with semantics by differing the two, revival and awakening. But I believe that there's a case to be made that revival represents one thing and awakening represents another. And we have biblical examples that we are going to look at. Because I believe that the Bible is the foundation of all that we believe. It is God's inspired word. I pray that before the seals are cracked open by our Savior, as God says, I desire all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That should be our heart also. Let me ask you today, do you have friends that don't know Christ? Do you have family members that don't know Christ? Do you have a spouse that doesn't know Christ? Do you have children or grandchildren that don't know Christ? I certainly would like to see them saved before we're plunged into a period of darkness like the world has never seen before. Some say to me, oh, I wish the Lord would have returned in the 1970s. I wouldn't be here today if that was the case. Some of you weren't even born. Your parents weren't even married. God's long-suffering is found as each day ticks by and He gives individuals another opportunity to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to leave you with these words this morning, if I may, to prime us and to prepare us for what we're going to see next in God's Word. 
Notice with me, in 2 Peter chapter 3, let's read these words together. 2 Peter chapter 3. Starting in verse 1. Behold, I write these things, the second epistle, in both of which to stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and by the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that when uh, then existed perished, being flooded with water, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by that same word, are reserved for for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But notice this word of transition, but. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as is one day. For the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's our heart. We want to see people saved for God's glory and for their return to him. That's what we want to see. So next week, we're going to be looking at the subject of revival and awakening to give us a biblical example of what that looks like. I know some of you might be growing weary in your Christian walk. I have found myself lately having to turn off the news, the various YouTube channels that I watch, And just take my Bible, get away with the Lord privately and pray to encourage my heart. I often go for long walks on the beach. No, I often go for long walks. Just talking to God. Asking me, asking Him to help me and carry me on. Because things are getting tough, aren't they? But I've noticed that as I've been doing so, my heart has been changing. Because I've asked God to help me see people as He sees them. Help me to love people as He loves people. People that I would have disregarded, it appears that Jesus ran right to them when He came the first time. Maybe we need to change first before God can do what God desires to do. But it's hard being patient and waiting on the Lord, isn't it? You know, I'll never forget when Dean and I bought our home right before we got married. We got married in June and we closed on our house that March just prior. And we went to the place where we signed all the papers. We had to go to a location, Chicago Title and Trust, I think it was called. And the lady came in and had a stack of papers that big, okay? 
And we were signing papers. We were just signing our life away, you know? Just one signature after another. Okay, we're going to give you money, and then we're going to charge you for it, and so forth. I'm just, okay, we were kids, just signing away. And then I saw one piece of paper in that whole stack, and it was the title deed to my house. And I was like, oh, maybe she's going to give us to, that to us now. And she picked it up, and she like, oh, no, you're going to have to make 360 payments before you get this piece of paper. Okay, talk about feeling defeated, 360. I'm on the other side of that. And when we paid off our home and we received that document, I thought about this moment, that Jesus Christ came and paid a price, and for 2,000 years we've been waiting for that title deed to be taken. And guess what? I think it's about to happen.